John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. Out of uh, reverence for God's word, if you're able, I invite you to please stand as I read his word to us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Those of you who have been on the nursery wing of the church, you have noticed some changes that are, that are there. And about a few weeks ago, we had to or needed to update that area because we moved all of the children, the classes for preschool out of the mods into the building. Some of our parents uh, felt like uh, that was uh, too far distance uh, for them. And, and we recognize that's, that's probably uh, true for how they feel and the environment in which we live. So we, we uh, put some new flooring down, uh, painted some walls, and prepared some rooms that were not being used for that purpose to be used. And so the entire uh, preschool and nursery now are all in one uh, section of our church. I tell you that because next week, after our guests uh, leave for the next host uh, uh, church, uh, we will be doing something very similar uh, to the Cove. For some time, uh, the uh, youth ministry has been asking us to update uh, the uh, Cove, which is where our youth ministry uh, goes on. And so we will begin that work, and in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to go down there and, and see uh, that work. And so if you go by and you see the construction, now you know why. How many of you, I'm getting now back to the text, how many of you uh, are students at Anne Arundel Community College? I see some here. All right, I just want you to know I am a fellow student of yours. A couple of weeks ago, I enrolled and I am taking Psychology 111. You think that's because I need it, don't you? Too funny. I took the... Yeah, that's what I learned. I'm okay and you're okay. That's just not true about you, Hector. 
I took the course for, for this reason, and I plan on taking others. I had Psychology 101 when I was in college before we went to the moon. Um, <laughs> when, when Freud was still living. I took the class, and it was funny because the professor asked this question of the 25 students that were in the room. Why are you here? What are you trying to accomplish? And um, so, obviously, I'm the oldest person in the room by far. I'm even older than the professor. (laughs) How unnerving that must make them feel. Actually, I've been well-received by the students. Not so much by the professor, but definitely by the students. So when it, when, it, when it got to me, I said, um, I'm here because I want to know what you think. You know, the older I become and the more I'm around you, the less I know what people not like us think. And that's not good. It's not healthy for, for me to not know how people who are different than us, and that could just simply be generational, but it could also mean life experience. And so that's why I I was telling them I was taking the class is that not only am I learning about something that I read a long time ago, but I'm actually learning it in a context of today. And then she said, what degree are you working on? Which is kind of funny, since I've got a few degrees. I said... I'm not working on a degree. You see, the reason you ask this question and what I learned from my first few days of this class is that students really are asking a couple of questions. They're they're seeking answers to a couple of key questions that I think our text answers. The first question is this. Is my life ever going to mean something? Is it ever going to matter? Is it going to make a difference? Is this major... Now, this professor was looking for a psychology major, and there was only one in the entire class. And she didn't celebrate until that particular person, which was the last person to speak, said. But people were nursing majors and education majors and and so many different kinds of things, all in hopes that that's going to provide... Uh, an avenue to make something of themselves, to become something of themselves. The other question that clearly came out, and maybe it came out because I was in a psychology class, is this idea of pursuit of joy. Now, I wouldn't always put that way. It was put in the context of being happy, thinking that a certain lifestyle, a certain amount of information, a certain relationship, a certain... Uh, hope and dream was going to provide that happiness. And, and how many of you grew up in the church and heard that happiness and joy are two different things? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. I want you to tell you that though that's a 20th century phenomenon, nobody believed that before the 20th century. You could read Jonathan Edwards. You could read Spurgeon. You could read Oswald Chambers. But more importantly, you can read the Bible, and the Bible uses them interchangeably. Matter of fact, there are a hundred verses in the Bible that interchange joy and happiness. In fact, there are two more words that are also interchangeable with joy and happiness. And this might surprise you. 
satisfaction, and contentment. All four of those words within these hundred different places that you can go to find these words are interchangeably uh, used. I think that's important for us because sometimes we'll go out and communicate people that happiness is a mere emotion and has no real connection to joy. But that's not how the Bible presents joy and happiness and satisfaction and contentment. It, it tends to say that happiness comes from joy. That they're interconnected and interdependent. And so with that in mind, those two questions, I want us for a few minutes before we go to the Lord's Supper to wrestle with this idea of joy. This idea that can I find fullness and joy. And sometimes the Bible will, will use this word, joyful. And really, it's bringing together two words into one. Joy and fullness. And so it's called joyful. Our text uses this. John is, uh, toward the end of his ministry, John the Baptist, he came onto the scene to announce the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is coming, baptizing lots of people. And toward the end of his ministry, as Jesus' ministry is just taking off, he's performing a few miracles and he's starting to get a pretty big crowd. And a few of John's disciples have gone over to be Jesus' disciples. And I told you that we're using as a working definition that a disciple is someone who follows. May not fully understand who and what the teaching is, but they're following. And so some of the followers of John have now become the followers of Jesus. And so some of John's disciples, followers, have come to him and said, Hey, look, all these people are now following Jesus. What, what he's saying is, is Jesus' ministry is bigger than yours now. And John's ultimate answer to that is that because he's here, my joy is full. The way he puts it is, my joy is complete. And so, I think I want to answer, not just for you, but also for my classmates, how do you find real joy? Is it possible that a 19-year-old can have joy? Can a 17-year-old can a be happy? Yes. At least John says you can. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you, uh, obviously, uh, three questions. What is the greatest obstacle to joy? And then secondly, because of that, what is the greatest cause for joy? I'm not saying it's the only cause for joy, because obviously you can find joy in lots of things. But is there an ultimate cause? Is there a, 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 a higher priority that creates a lasting, permanent joy that expresses itself in happiness. You know, one of the worst convincing arguments for joy is Christians having a lack of happiness. You can't convince me you're full of joy when you are so tight. You're not convincing anyone you're joyful. 
You can say joy all you want. That doesn't make you full of joy. Then the third question is this. Is there a goal for joy? That is, okay, is, is joy the goal? Or is there a, a goal that, is, that joy points us to, takes us to, drives us, leads us? Okay, with those three questions, let's first unpack the very first one, which is, what's the greatest obstacle to joy? That's, that's the first question that John, in his response, deals with. And let me give you the answer up front and then explain. The greatest obstacle to joy is that we exhaust ourselves. I can't overemphasize exhaust. Trying to earn what can only be received by grace. The context for this discussion is a debate about purification. Did you see that? Look at verse 25. Now a discussion, which is a biblical polite way, say, of an argument, arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And purification is about how to be right with God. That is, if you're already right with God, you don't need to be purified. So the argument that Jews often had with teachers is... What is the means, what's the method, what's the way in which someone who is not pure becomes pure? And the Old Testament is full of sacrifices and offerings to take someone who has become unclean on how they become clean. And so that argument, as it comes into the New Testament, you can imagine this debate of, is there another way, or is it the same old same, in order to be purified, you must do these things. They're debating ultimately what it means to be right with God. And maybe you're not even wondering that. Maybe this morning you're not wondering if you need to be right with God. Maybe you don't care whether you're right with God. I think if you're willing to admit either of those two things, that's okay. You're in a good place. Because then you're ready to hear this. God is not right with you. God has a problem with you. He has a problem with every human being. God created human beings with a design by which they would have shalom. Now, often you hear that's a greeting between one Jew and another Jew. Shalom, it's kind of like hello and goodbye. But that's not the way. In fact, in the Old Testament, they didn't shalom each other. Except when they were doing this. May you have wholeness. That which is disintegrated about our world. That which is disintegrated about your life. That which is broken down. That which is uh, not right. Might be healed. Might be brought right. Might be reintegrated. That's what the word shalom means. So if you run around and you see a Jew and you pop out with shalom, that's what you're wishing. And that's why that's such a biblical word that God has designed us to be whole with him. But we're not. How many songs did we sing this morning about not being right with God? All of them. Check it out. All of them. All of them were about 
sin and brokenness and the need for mercy. Why? Because we're singing about our need for shalom. The original design. And that's what takes our joy away. Not because we are not right with God, but because God is not right with us. Do you get that? Because it's like the argument with your spouse. You come home and you get in this debate and you weren't even looking for the argument. And you said, but I don't have a problem with you. But she says, I've got a problem with you and therefore you've got a problem. Just because you don't have a problem with God does not mean that God doesn't have a problem with you. That's why they're debating purification. You and I live under incredible pressure. Incredible pressure to perform. We're all in relationships. Now, some of you are, have spouses and that carries uh, expectations and uh, roles. Some of you uh, have children and that has expectation. Some of you are children and, and still living at home. Maybe you're not even living at home and you still have expectations on you from your parents. The pressure is tremendous. Pressure to get a job, pressure to make a living, uh, pressure uh, to uh, excel and, and, and make promotions. Tremendous uh, pressure that is on us. A girl today doesn't just have to be a nice person. She has to be uh, pretty and smart and athletic. Think of the pressure that is on a teenage girl today. Or a teenage boy to, to not just simply be a nice person, but he's also got to be handsome and witty and athletic. There's no wonder... So many of our children are on antidepressants. It's so depressing. The pressure that they live under. If you have a parent don't realize the pressure that your kids are under, that's not good parenting. Even if you're not causing any of the pressure. But my guess is if you ask your, your son or daughter, even without you speaking pressure, there's pressure to perform. Three years ago, it's the last we have a statistic in Anne Arundel County, reported nine successful suicides between the ages of 10 and 18. There were more than 50 in total, but of the ages between 10 and 18. A lot of them go unreported in the newspaper because they don't want to encourage more. And so it goes unreported. The pressure for grades, the pressure in the home, and the pressure, and the pressure on the athletic field or in a relationship is so great that a kid decides that it is better off not being in this world than being in this world. And therefore, something is wrong. Is it any wonder if, if everybody is under pressure that we don't 
that we think that's also the way it is with God? If it's that way at work, if that's the way at home, if that's the way it is at school, if that's the way it is in church, if that's the way it is everywhere, why isn't it also... I mean, it's just normal, logical thinking to think that's also the way it is with God. And so what do we do? We try to make ourselves right and to stay right with God. And when we fail, we feel we've lost everything And God too. And the sad thing is because everybody fails, everybody goes there. What's John's response to all that performance? Because they're asking John, John, Jesus is getting the crowds. Do something. Look at verse 27. John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You hear what he's saying? The essence of Christianity is that we are made clean by someone else becoming dirty. We are made right. We don't make ourselves right. If there's any message that we can give those in our church who are young and people who are old who are asking the question of how to be right with God, you don't do it. It is done for you. Get off the treadmill. It is destroying your joy. It is your obstacle. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteous of God. Do you hear it? It's all of grace. Someone else became dirty so that we could become clean. In every other religion, you make yourself clean to have a relationship with God. Christianity, the essence of Christianity is that God made you clean so you can have a relationship with Him because you can't do it yourself. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your works. It's a gift of God. It's all of grace. Now, do you see why performance? There's nothing wrong with performance in and of itself. It's always the goal of performance. If the goal of performance is for you to have a life of meaning or, or more importantly, to, to, to find true joy, then obviously it's a treadmill and it's taking you nowhere. You know what a treadmill is? Miles of miles of going nowhere. I got one in my basement. I visit it occasionally. But I do not miss it. Because it's miles and miles of going nowhere. Our performance is robbing us of our joy. Because we think it's going somewhere. A performance took us there, but it wasn't ours. And therefore, you're ready for the cause. If it's not you, if you are not the cause of your joy, in fact, you are the obstacle to your joy is what I'm saying. It's what John is saying. What's the cause? And I already told you there's many causes for joy. But the ultimate cause for joy is that God made a fool of himself to save us because he loves us. Remember the context. It is professional jealousy. 
you got bigger crowds than I do. Do something, John. You used to be the man, now he's the man. Do something. In our heart of hearts, we want to be heralded. We want to be recognized. We want someone to notice. What's John's response to that desire of his disciples for John to do something to get the crowds back? Look at verse 28 and 29. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, not only did I tell you it's not me, I'm not the man. I never was the man. I was always the one pointing to the man. But he's also saying, it's not about me. It never has been about me. How many people grew up and thought this was about you. How many heard that you were the subject and object of this book? You're lying. You are. I can't tell you. It, it's a it, it, it's a, a manual on human life. It is uh, the how-to to have a better marriage or raise children or have a better government in the church. Those things might be contained in there, but that's not its purpose, and that's not what it is about. From cover to cover, it is about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Always about Jesus. And when we make it about something else, we take people's eyes off of Jesus, and we become an obstacle for joy. Jesus' example here, or John's example here, is of the bridegroom and the best man and the bride. He's using a wedding as his metaphor. And he says, it's not the role of the best man to be the bridegroom. We would think it was a social uh, mistake, error, for the best man to be the best dressed person in the wedding. Particularly better dressed than the bridegroom. What do we typically do? We want to make sure he's just a little bit less. Go, those of you who can't remember your wedding, because it's been too long, just go to one of these uh, a bridegroom stores where you can rent a tux. What is the first question they ask you if you're the bridegroom? What's the difference do you want between what you're going to wear and your groomsman? It's built into the culture. It's built into who we are because we know it is a social faux pas for the the best man to look better than the bridegroom because it's just not right. But it's also not right for the best man to come down to, here comes the bride. Can you imagine? Everybody's waiting and and here comes the bride and the mother of the bride stands and the only person who's coming down the aisle is the best man. He's drawing attention to himself. Often, I've done a lot of weddings, but sometimes you forget that sometimes it's the first time they've been in a wedding. Obviously, hopefully, not hopefully, but many times it is true for the bride and groom. But sometimes you don't recognize that the groomsman and the bridesmaid, a lot of times it's the first time they've been in a wedding. 
So they don't know where to stand. They don't know where to look. And so you have to tell them. There's a rule. The rule is this. Wherever the bride is, is where you face. So when she's in the back of the room, everybody faces the back. When she comes up, you look inward. And when everybody turns forward is when she turns forward. Everybody determines their posture on the bride because it is a social faux pas. It is wrong to draw attention to anyone other than the bride and the bridegroom at a wedding. you got to tell a lot of mothers that. If it's not about me, then who is it about? This is where Sunday school really helps. It's Jesus. Well, then how is heralding someone else make me happy? Well, it's to see what Jesus has done. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has a poem that many of you learned. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. One of the ways she left out. Romans 5.8 God demonstrated his own love toward you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. He became a fool on the cross. You might not be comfortable with that kind of language, fool, but that's what the language that Paul used of the cross. He said to the Gentiles... The cross is foolishness. God God left heaven where he had everything, where his joy was already full to come here to make a fool out of himself. We're the ones who think this planet is the bee's knees. We're the ones who think that being human is the chief of all things. We're the ones who think living on this planet in your family is the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's not true. God sent His Son from the greatest place in the cosmos, among the greatest family in the cosmos, to come here in this dysfunctional, disintegrated world to hang on a cross for you. He was willing to be naked and exposed for you. My children know I am willing and have made a fool out of myself for my children. I I didn't have a great relationship with my parents, so I didn't know that about them. And so my children know that. My daughter will tell you the worst thing I ever did for her is that I was concerned when she was going to her prom that she would not have a date, so I secured her one. Is it true? I, uh, I went among her friends and I said, my daughter is going to the prom and I'd like you to take her. Guy, after he got up off the floor in shock, said, sure. And what do you do when your pastor asks you to take your, his daughter to the prom? <laughs> what do you think he's going to say? No. I get, get him excommunicated. <laughs> of course he took her. She had a great time, but that's not typically how it's done, just so you know, dads. I have a, Bob's probably comes at 11 o'clock, but Bob Butler and I for years hounded the sidelines screaming at refs because our sons were on a soccer team. This one time, uh, the ref was wrong. 
I'm just telling you. He thought he was right, and he uh, told Bob and I that if we kept up, we would not be able to stay at the game. And I said he could try. He wasn't big enough to move me off. Is that true? He said, well, I'm not big enough to move you, but I will stop the game. All right. I tell you that because that's the kind of love God has for you. Not to sin. (laughs) That was my deal. But he went to the cross to become sin for you. He became a fool. Do you do you understand that's the source, the cause of your joy? Is that God was willing to come here because we read this all the time? Because somebody gets up here and reads it and reads it not necessarily with a lot of passion. It's ho oh home to you. God left heaven for you and died for you. What's the goal? This is the wrap up. There's a goal, there's a purpose to the joy. So that people would see Jesus. That's why he says, I must decrease so that he might increase. He's he's saying, I want to make much of Jesus. This isn't about me or my ministry. It's about Jesus. For people to see Jesus, they need to see less of me. It's simple math. Two things cannot have prime. Only one prime. And if there's a prime, there's a secondary. I'm secondary. He's prime. This is true for John. John physically is going to be arrested and beheaded. Physically, it became so for him. For you and me, it's socially, culturally, spiritually, and for a few, physically. I know this is against everything that you and I believe our, our American dream is have a nice house and, and have a nice car and have a nice family, nice things, nice life. It's counterintuitive. That's why uh, Jim Elliott, who is a missionary uh, to Ecuador, and he was martyred for preaching the gospel, and he's the one who said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you had to give up your life, if you have to give up your nice things, your nice car, your nice house, in order to be full joy, you haven't lost anything of import. You've gained the most important thing. What a lot of people don't know is that Nate Saint died with Jim Elliott and all of them. Well, several of them had guns. Nate Saint was one of them. He could have used his gun to protect himself and others. In fact, his own son, Stephen, begged him to protect himself with his gun. And he answered, I can't. If they die, they're not ready. But I am. That's why Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But everyone who loses his life for my sake saves it. You want meaning and purpose? Let people see Jesus in you. Karl Barth, who was a theologian in Germany, many of you read Diedrich Bonhoeffer's uh, biography, and one of the stories in there is about 
Diedrich, when Hitler took over Germany, he fled. He came to the United States and thought we were so liberal, he went to Britain. Talking about our theology. And while he was in Britain, he got a letter from Karl Barth, his friend, his mentor. And he said, the church is on fire. Come home. The church has need of you. The Nazis were trying to stamp out the church. The goal of your joy is that people might see Jesus. This is my joy. Sunday after Sunday you see him. Because I know as soon as you leave here, somebody else is going to try to obscure it. This is the joy of this church for 53 years is that you might see Jesus. How else do you explain the peeling of the wallpaper and the stains in the carpet? How else do you explain that for 35 years we put kids in, in mods because it's always been about Jesus, not the place? That's why when we get into debates about what's important to us, our own preferences, it always is settled about Jesus. Because we want people to see Jesus. Everything must be put after that priority. I just want you to know, people will test that. If you believe that, and you work toward that goal, if you find your joy when you hear someone baptized... Sometimes I I wonder, and I didn't make much of it, but last week, three adults were baptized. Presbyterians hardly ever see that. People are going to try to rob you of that. And some of the worst will be right here in our church. We kind of expect it from the world. We want to see Jesus and we don't want anything to get in that way. Which is why He gave us the table. He gave us the table because He knew just saying it wasn't going to be enough for us. We were going to have to taste it. We were going to have to grind the bread between our teeth to recognize that our Savior was crushed for our iniquities. And by His stripes, we are healed. We find shalom. We were going to physically be drinking and smelling that cup. Because we need to be reminded that it was His blood that covered our sins and made us right with God, not our work. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And we've kind of changed a little bit on you. I'm not sorry for the change, but I'm sorry if, if, if you feel odd in the midst of it. We're going to ask you again to get up out of your seats. We want to do that because we want you to participate. We want you to look the person who is serving you in the eye and hear him say to you, this is the Lord who has been given for you. This is the Lord who covered your sins. Obviously, not everybody in this room can get out of their seats. 
Some physically, it's, it's hard to get up and down and stand in line. Just stay right where you are. We'll come to you. Just raise your hand when I get near you. And we'll feed you right there in the chair, in the pew. But for those that can, come forward. It's an opportunity for you to participate in worship. To show that this is a communal event as you stand in line with one another. As you engage, tell somebody you're glad to see them. And that you get to participate in the sacrament of the Lord together as you come forward.